The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 189 on the com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the oneouter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash oneouter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on the oneouter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for the show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Just one other little sort of house notes and housekeeping. Uh, I did notice on iTunes somebody else left us a review uh, a few months ago, so I can't remember the guy's name and I think he the username made it clear it was someone that does messaging a lot so thanks to that guy i will check it next time and give a shout out but that is much appreciated so if anybody listening when you're in itunes if that's where you get the podcast please do just like quickly leave a review you know it takes literally two seconds on your you can do it from your phone even i think through itunes it does help um boost it up the numbers and stuff etc and that all helps the show and in turn helps me and alex so that's much appreciated if you could take the time just to do that. And I don't know, it's probably the same on Stitcher. We are on there now as well. Alex, it's Stitcher it's called, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah, yeah guys, leave a review and four months later, Barry will give you a vague thank you without <laughs> no, your but I just saw that the other week as well. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Good job, bro. Yeah. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. No, no, no problem. Yeah, he got me there. Alex got me there. That's good. Um, yeah, Stitcher, I don't know, I, th- I assume there's some sort of review system on that as well, so if you could, any sort of review and like on Facebook and stuff, it all helps and adds up, um, so that was just another thing if you do get a chance. Uh, that's all the housekeeping done. Alex, we are here, we're recording this on Wednesday, you've got personal business tomorrow, so you're uh, away for Thursday. There will not be a show next week, the uh, 16th of August it will be, Thursday. Uh, August is a five Thursday month, and we think if we give you five shows in a month, yeah, that might be the nail in the coffin. So we're just keeping it to four a month. Uh, People seem to be happy with that. Alex, how have you been? What's happening? And what's going on? I've been good, Barry. Thank you for having me, as always. I've been good. Not a whole lot to report. I'm going on a trip tomorrow. Uh, uh, One of my friends, uh, my girlfriend and I's friends, is getting married uh, to a great guy, so we're really happy to be going out to do that. It's in in a very nice part of Washington State, so that's something I'm looking forward to. I'm also getting to meet my half-brother for the first time, the Brazilian one, while I'm out there, so that was serendipitous that that all came together at the same time, and I get to put it together with seeing my mother and sister, which of course is always nice. Uh, 
that being said, uh, waking up at 3.30 tomorrow morning to catch the flight, <laughs> not, not, not the greatest thing I've ever gotten to do. I'm a, <laughs> a, a little bummed out about that, but I'm sure even though you know how it is, Barry, with these trips, it's a whirlwind, you're tired, and at the end it's worth it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So you're going to be meeting a Sassanato Jr. as well, your, your half-brother. I'm going to be meeting a little Sassanato, yeah. He's, uh, I, you know, Sassanato is Portuguese. It, it's going to be really weird when he's old enough to realize that's a name I go by. <laughs> he's going to be like, what? What did my brother call himself? Did he know what that meant? Well, not really. He thought it was a cool word. So he put that on his screen name. Now he has to go by that for the rest of his life. So are you but, giving him yep. some, some of your webinars for his little tablet and stuff as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro. If you want to get out of Campo Grande, you need yeah. to start working right now. Yeah. On his little VTech tablet or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't that crazy? Kids got tablets now. Could you imagine if we had a tablet when we were kids? I know. I, I, I had my nephew in the car on Sunday. We were driving, you know, like 30, 40 minute drive. And he's usually chatterbox. And uh, I met, you know, my brother and his wife and them. And I said, well, just take my car. Take one car to the place we were going. And he always wants to sit in the front. So he was in my passenger seat and they were in the back. And it took me about like 10 minutes. I was like, he's so quiet. You know, he was sitting next to me and he had some game on his tablet and it was he was just mesmerized, you know, hammering away on it. And it is, it's crazy. When you look at the tablets and phones that kids have got now, I mean, that is, I remember watching, you know, cartoons like probably yourself, Alex, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They had the turtle com. I mean, walkie-talkies were <laughs> space age to me. You know, like, the idea of someone in 1991 or something handed me an iPhone, it would just, I think my, my head would explode in YouTube and things. I mean, without sounding like some, you know, old dinosaur, it's just, it's frightening now that the, the technology, and you know, he's eight, what's he going to have when he's 16, and what's he experienced, and what's he got access to when he's 16, and then 21, it's just, it's crazy, I don't know what what the world looks like in 13 years, you know? Nothing makes me feel older than seeing those kids on tablets because have you tried to play a video game on a tablet within the last five years, Barry? Yeah, he had me playing one. It was like basically a glorified version of Snake. And oh, yeah. yeah, but it, it like jumped through. It was almost 3D um, rather than 2D. And it was really quick and you had to like go through all the bits and collect these things. A lot of them seem to be very simple gameplay on the tablets in terms of, but they're addictive. They, they've got that, you know, it's really hard and then you get good at it and then, you know, so you have to keep trying Barry, again. Barry, I think your mic tripped up. No, no, can you hear me? We love that we have that. All right, um, yeah, can you hear me okay, yeah? I can hear you good now. Yeah, no, I've I've not muted or anything. I don't know. It must just be connection. Um, no, just like with Snake and things, it's they're very sort of gameplay based games, if you know what I mean. It's, they're they're very simple. It's like Snake, you know, version version nineteen. They're they're addictive in the sense that. But the thing that gets me is the unlimited lives. He he loses and he just tries again. You know, tries again, tries again, and then. 
Whereas, like, when we played, you got, like, what, three lives, you had to gain extra lives, and then you maybe got two yeah. continues or something if you were lucky. <laughs> yeah, you had to keep putting quarters in the thing. Yeah. I think that's why people like mobile games, puzzle games especially, is it is about the gameplay. It's simple, but it, much like No Limit Oldham, Minute to Learn, Lifetime to Master a lot of these games. Whereas when I play on the PlayStation, it's just so... Okay, now you're going to be commanding this team of 12 guys as you're infiltrating a third world country that is confederated with a local state. Jesus, dude, I wanted to shoot some things. <laughs> Why is this so complicated, right? You have to draft this guy. This guy's from Romania. He speaks a different dialect of Russian than your other guys, so you have to buy a translator. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I just want to play, but... It's weird when you play those games now, you think back to when you were little and you could play Mike Tyson's Punch-Out for six hours, and now I, I bought a Nintendo DS, one of the original ones, and I, got, I heard there was a new Super Mario, and I loved Super Mario, so I got the new one, and I played it for 45 minutes, and it was amazing on a flight, but then my brain was just going like, this is so tiring, I would so much rather read a book and... I wonder if, like, your nephew, is he going to be space age ahead of us because he's been training with those Twitch video games since he was very little, whereas that was more of a special treat for us when we were younger? Are, are the pleasure centers of his brain just going to be burned out of their sockets? Yeah. I really wonder that. I think it's funny. I, obviously, I can't speak for every eight-year-old, but... You know, my nephew, he's very um, old school as well. And anything remotely, like what we've talked about on the show before, analog, you know, and hard copy, he's really into as well. Um, actually, like at the flea market, my brother bought a original, like, cassette recorder. You know, like a Sony cassette recorder thing. And uh, some of them sell, like, quite well online. And what happened was... My nephew took a real, like, oh, what's this? And he watches things with, like, the police, and he's writing at the police and stuff just now. And, you know, actually law enforcement, <laughs> not stinging the police. You know, that's what I'm saying. Um, and uh, so he saw these as, like, the interview tapes, you know, like, for recording interviews, like they do. When... <laughs> so he was like, oh, I want these cassettes. And I was like, I've got some cassettes. So I gave him these cassettes. So it's funny. He sits and thinks that's great, recording his voice on that and then playing it back and messing around with it. But then I said to, like, his mum, I said, he's got an iPhone there and a tablet that you can literally press voice record and, you know, it does it. But him being able to handle the tape and see it and see how it works and actually do it, it's probably more, in a weird way, it's flipped. It's actually more uh, exciting to the child or to the kid than uh -huh. just this thing that does it, you know, like. An iPhone just does that because it does it. It translates because it doesn't. Uh, because it does it. Because you press a button. It's an app. It's all in the background. You don't have to actually go and do anything really other than press one button. Whereas the tape, you have to take out. You have to press the, the rewind and do it. Record over. And, and actually handling the physical media as well. I think, it's, I think that's weird how it flips. Like Even modern day kids with the technology at their hands, if you showed them a VHS cassette and films and then a video player they would like it and they'd like to put it in and press it on and play around with it etc well it's just like us in vinyls i guess yeah. because remember when we were little 
CDs were just what you listen to music on, and I, I guess cassette tapes before that. And when your dad would bring out vinyls, you'd go, what is this? And the fact you actually had to put it on something that was analog and the needle, it was all very cool. Hell, they probably, they have that with everything. I, I, uh, I remember I, was, I had notepads for years, and I would just walk around with a notepad and I remember young kids just thinking that was space age weird to see somebody with a notepad just scribbling in it. And it is interesting how people gravitate toward that. I, I think it's, there's this wonderful book called iGen, and it's the same woman, I believe it's the same woman who coined the term millennials. And she wrote a book, it was pretty funny, it was called The Narcissism Epidemic, and it was about millennials. And I read that in, I want to say 10 years ago, maybe. No, probably less time than that. But she called out every single thing that was going to happen with millennials before they happen, just based on her research. Well, anyways, she made a book uh, about iGen, and that's the group that's coming after millennials, after us. And she was saying that, if you look at when cell phones came in, smartphones particularly came in, and you look at depression rates and you look at suicide rates and anxiety rates, if you put the graphs over each other, it's just perfect. Now, obviously, correlation doesn't equal causation, but they've done studies now where with one group, uh, they don't do anything. They just they make sure with the control group they have very moderate cell phone use. With another group, they say, I need you to check your cell phone every five minutes or whatever it is, right? And it's, I need you to check an email, a tweet, your Instagram, Snapchat, whatever you want. You just got to look at your cell phone every five minutes. It's going to go off. And then with another group, they restrict how much they can look at their cell phone, but they make them read a physical book for an hour. And when they do this study, and I think they've done it a few times now, the people that have to read a physical book, their depression rates go down, their anxiety rates go down. The control group, obviously, nothing happens. And the group that has to look at their cell phone all the time, their anxiety goes up. So I think what's happening is people just naturally notice. I, I know I naturally notice. I have a Kindle, and I love my Kindle to death because when I was in Costa Rica, getting books in English that weren't written by John Grisham was very difficult. So I had to buy a Kindle, and then I had access to the world. I love my Kindle quite a bit, but at the end of the day, sometimes I'll pull open my Kindle, and it's just it's another screen. It's in your eyes. It's bright when you're trying to tune down at the end of the day. Whereas if you grab a physical book, the weight of the book, the feel of the paper, the different script, it does calm you down a bit, and I think kids, I was very optimistic about the generation after millennials, more optimistic than I am about millennials. I think a lot of iGen just has an appreciation for that because they've just been, it's not a novelty to them, cell phones and the internet and everything, the way it's a novelty to some people our age who still tweet every five seconds because... Dear God, we have to know what they think about every political issue, whereas to them, they, 
they're kind of over that. And I think you're starting to see that with your nephew. They're just gravitating to things that yeah. seem kind of cool and uh, vintage and maybe are have a mellowing effect on them. But also, I think, uh, let's get, I mean, let's get it in now, early on the show. Nassim Taleb, um, he, he uh, I, I can't remember him. I almost spit my coffee, sorry. I, I, can't remember, <laughs> I can't remember him which one it is, but he talks about um, the concept of, you know, technology comes along and then something comes out to try and replace it, and then that fails and it goes back to the, the original one. And it's like in thousands of years, you still can't beat, you know, pencil and paper or pen and paper. You know, you still can't, yes. you can't beat that. And I think it's the same for a lot of things, you know, that, that, it, that it will, uh, what we'll experience. And it's like, you know, even like televisions, the whole 3D thing tried a few years ago, that failed, you know, and it's back to just... I knew that was going to, too, because no one puts on those 3D goggles and goes, this is pleasant. Yeah, and sits they in go, their house like that. Strange. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's inter- anyway, it, it is interesting in terms of, you know, the applications of that, in terms of, like, like you say, a generation coming through, and um, what it will be like, what technology, and what it will look like. Will it be this hybrid mix of... That's why, like, I always liked science fiction films where it was, you know, the battered and bruised universe, like Star Wars was fa- famous for, and Blade Runner as well. You know, it wasn't this... <laughs> it was, you know... Uh, flying cars, but there were still porn posters stuck on the wall and stuff, you know, for call girls and things like that. And uh, that sort of Blade Runner, you know, environment. And uh, that's probably a real sort of dystopian future that, that, that we're looking at. But, um, so, speaking of um, things and uh, analogue, I don't write the questions down. I do copy and paste them from people's emails into uh virtual notepad on my iPhone because otherwise that would just be insane. So it, it, <laughs> it does have its uses, technology, and it does make our lives easier as well. Um, okay, do you want to just go right into the questions, Alex? And uh, there are a few, and some of them are quite long, and I do, I do like to just read them out when people have taken the time to write in an email. Sure, but I, I feel like we have to make an obligatory mention about how Poker is very analog in a digital wor- world. Wasn't it you who made that point? It's actually my fiance. She she said uh, really? that yeah yeah I gave her credit as well in the original one and uh, and I said you know she she said it to me. I can't even remember what we were talking about. And she said it's because it's analog, you know, in a digital world. So she she definitely came up with that. Um, like why people, you know, still in this day and age, like prefer things like that. And it's true. It's like if you go to Vegas and sit there in a tournament, and you know, you play with the chips. You know, you use U.S. dollars cash to buy in, etc. And sit down, and you're talking with the other players. I'm sorry, but for me, that just completely wipes the floor with putting my debit card number in playing against some avatars where the only chat you see in the chat box is just a big load of abuse if someone sucks out on someone or makes some play and then when you win it's like you've won and like numbers on a screen go up then sitting there playing having a laugh or seeing complete craziness or there's good people at your table or complete idiots at your table like, win or lose, getting up from the table, walking over, cashing out. And, you know, that just beats it. It does. For me, anyway. I 
I think, well, I was thinking about, it's funny you were talking about a dystopian universe, and I always thought, I love books like that, by the way. I, I'm really, I just read one, by the way, called Shockwave Writer, which is amazing if anybody wants to check it out. Super weird, super 70s dystopian fiction. I'd really recommend that to anyone who's into that genre. I'd never heard of it. But I was thinking, just reading that book, why do dystopian futures never have gambling? Or if they have gambling, it's some weird game that no one's ever heard of. I, I want to see some Hold'em in a dystopian future. And I was thinking the other day, what would Hold'em look like in 50, 100 years if, you know, now I'm having real fun with the dystopian idea, but if uh, global warming wrecked the earth big, and big we were all... on A with five cards in the whole deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? And everybody's still pissing and moaning yeah. now. But uh, the, I was thinking, well, for, it turned into uh, what would I like it to be, right? And I was thinking you go to some casino much in the way you would walk into a sports book in the UK and they give you a station and you play against the whole world just like it were esports with uh with announcers and things of that nature and i was thinking every tournament would have 27 entries and at the end you aggregate all of your chips and then face off and i would like that because during the brief time full tilt had multi-entry tournaments. Uh, if anybody would like to shark scope the Assassinato, you can see I was very much liking that tournament structure because the biggest problem with tournaments is you don't get to play enough. And like overnight, that was gone. The problem being, if that structure continued in nine months, every non-pro would be broke, right? And I was thinking, ooh, I would love that. All right, I loved Zoom poker. That was my big thing. I love uh, my. My WCOOP event win was in Zoom, and I always loved online poker more than anything, just because I'm more of a technical player, but the more I got thinking about it, I think, Barry, in 100 years, poker's probably still going to be the exact same it looks like right now. <laughs> it's probably just going to be Hold'em, it's probably just going to be Chips. Uh, I'll, I'll bet there will be something where they can count your Chips, just if you put it over a certain area just like they do with library books now or groceries. But, you know, those damn things will be broken all the time and we won't <laughs> use them half the time. And it, and really, I wrote that book on live poker, which I just finished the second draft yesterday. I rewrote the whole thing. Uh, I just finished it off yesterday. I really got into live poker over the next couple of years because I'm pretty sure that's going to exist till the end of time, and if you would like a job outside of what corporatists would like you to do on the whole of the earth, you need to learn how to play No Limit Hold'em in person, and to be quite frank with that, I bet you, Barry, are better at that than I am, because, yeah, I have all the technical skill, I've seen literally billions of hands analyzed, but there's still something very human about running a bluff and the guy getting to look at you in the eye and figure out if you have that. Mm -hmm. And that is something that there's... You, what you were saying, Nassim Taleb was talking about in the book, Anti-Fragile, what is the future going to look like? And the whole book, if you guys haven't read that book, I think it's my favorite book I've ever read. 
It's just the longer something has lasted before, the longer it's most like it's likely to last. And he was talking about the future is probably going to look a lot like what it looks like right now, which is if you go to Pompeii and you look at the ruins and you see a kitchen, you're going to see 90% of the tools they were cooking with are the exact same things you use right now. And I think poker has been the exact same time, has been the exact same thing since they were playing on riverboats and since they were playing on the Titanic. I, I don't, I just don't see it changing. Whereas online poker, since it's only been around for, his whole thing in that book is if something's been around for a hundred years, it's really likely to be around for another hundred years. If it's been around for 10, it's really likely to be around for another 10. Online poker has been around for what? 15 years. I think it's really likely to change several times over within the next few years, especially with the changing legality, the advent of cryptocurrency, what influence, analytics and statistic tracking is going to have on the market. And while that's very exciting, I think if you want to insulate yourself from that, you do have to develop a live game, which hopefully we can do as we answer some questions, huh, Barry? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why we make the big bucks. You hear that flawless transition? Sorry, well, go going back on it as well, most people tend to email in the questions rather than tweet them or post them in Facebook. And email's the oldest in terms of the internet communication sort of thing, so... Okay, this one is from Augie. And I'm just going to read out the full thing. What was that, Augie? Yeah, A-U-G-I-E. I I think his name's Augustus or that, but he signed his email, Augie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, Augie. Okay, go ahead. Uh, This one is... Here we go. Alex, want to start off by thanking you and Barry for the recent string of podcasts. Your obvious love and enthusiasm for the game has been overwhelming these past few weeks and listening to you talk has been lighting a fire under my ass, not only in terms of poker but life in general. I'm a 19-year-old college student taking the upcoming semester off and while I've had a bunch of anxiety surrounding the decision in my future, listening to the podcast helps me clear my head and focus my thoughts on my personal development and path. While the path of a professional poker player is not my goal, I do love the game and studying it has brought me a lot of joy over the past year and a half. Being under 21 though, my options for where to play live have been quite limited until I recently came across a charity poker group in my home city of Chicago that is 18 plus. Getting to the question now. I played my first live session tonight since I played in the area at the start of the year. When I played poker, oh, so that was illegal, Augie, then. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't catch that. What was illegal? Playing in the area at the start of the year. It's 21 at the area, is it not? In Vegas, I'm assuming. You know, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, normally, yeah. Anyway, it's fine. We won't, tell, we won't read out your second name, Augie. Uh, <laughs> when I played poker in Vegas, I was a bundle of nerves and noticed my heart beating fast and my hands shaking often throughout the weekend. I chalked this up to my nervousness with being caught by the floor or casino for playing underage. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, However, when I played tonight under legal circumstances, I was experiencing the same jitters that didn't go away for an hour. Being honest with myself, I don't think it was from fear but genuine excitement that I was able to play the game that I have really found a passion for and that just being at the table got me pumped. 
However, I would love to hear from your own experience, your emotions at the table, and to ask you whether you think this is a tell that I need to deal with and reign under control, or if it will naturally pass as I play more hands. Sorry for the long question, but really appreciate your response and love your guys' work. Thank you so much, Augie. Hey, Augie, thank you for writing in. I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to send us an email, and thank you for the very kind words. It means a lot to Barry and I. Yeah. The, the first thing we got to talk about, and I'm sure Barry knew this was coming, is you taking a semester off. When you're 19, I think the best place for you to be, and this is coming from a guy who clowns on college nonstop, I often refer to it as four-year paid vacation. But in the United States, you have to realize how this country works. There are people in this country with college degrees and without college degrees. And they are treated very differently, and they have very different socioeconomic futures. This assuming we're considering a college degree of some applicable use. If your parents are willing to help you with that, I would really advocate that you take advantage of that. Because when you're 19, look, Barry didn't know what he was doing at 19. I didn't know how to tie my shoes at 19. Nobody knows what they're doing at 19. If, while you don't know what to do, you're getting a degree, I think that's a very good use of your time. Or... I would say that or apprenticing somewhere, working a real job, getting a trade job. Now, if you want to write back right now, Alex, my parents aren't helping me with this. It's college loans and I don't know what to do. Okay, that's actually very responsible. I would advocate you get a trade job somewhere. They, uh, contractors these days will tell you they're just dying for anybody to come in. If they hear anybody's got a boy who's not doing anything at 18, they're, they're saying, I'll pay you $10 an hour just to train you because they need people who will work trade jobs so bad in the United States. And the grimier, the dirtier, the more they'll pay you. Learn how to clean septic tanks, plumbing, any of that. And then when you're most of those trade jobs, getting the expertise... That takes about a year or two, and then when you're making 80000 a year, you can sock away thirty k after taxes as long as you live below your means, cook for yourself, uh, don't, don't do anything expensive, don't spend your money drinking, uh, things like that. Then you can go to school if you want, if you're in that situation, but I just want to make sure you're not aimless right now and playing cards because then Barry and I aren't really doing our job because Barry, you have a degree, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's nice to know you have it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I don't have a degree and I can tell you once you get to my age at 30 and you start seeing how the people with degrees are doing versus the people like me who, uh, you know, we're working at an Arby's, uh, you start seeing why they're so important. And this is coming from a guy that makes fun of them constantly. Now, that being said, as far as nervousness at the table, that's totally fine. Uh, I had the problem of, I got kicked out of Tulalip Casino when I was underage because I wasn't nervous. 
and I was talking some smack, and somebody had the idea to ID me, and I went, all right, it's been nice knowing you guys, <laughs> and I walked out, and yeah, it was really fun when I turned 21 coming in again, hey, how's everybody doing? But uh, anywho, as far as nervousness at the table, I, I get nervous every time I play. Usually when the first hand happens, it goes away. I think anybody who works in a performance-based job will tell you that. I think, I think it was Donny Osmond who got to the point he was vomiting before every performance, and that guy's just Mr. Las Vegas, has been doing it since he was literally a child. And I think Barbara Streisand had that as well. Wow. Uh, wow. These are some references. Yeah. Uh, we referenced Taleb, and now it's Donny Osmond and Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is gold. <laughs> I am well read, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. You can learn stuff from all these guys. They are. I mean, they're, they're stalwarts of, you know, the entertainment industry. Yes, sir. Well, I, I got into... Uh, I, I got very nervous when I was at the EPT San Remo final table, and looking over the hands... Uh, I didn't capitalize on the situation, but I didn't play poorly. But I, I was very, very much wondering why I wasn't able to calculate things on the level that I normally can. Because one of the advantages I have is I've been playing cards every single day since I was 15. So usually after the first few hands, it's just old hat to me. And I got really into why players choke. And I have choked in major tournaments. Uh, I misread a stack one time and shoved for seven times pot with a flush draw into the nuts. That one felt wonderful. Uh, but what I've really come to realize is people build it up so much in their minds that your brain goes from system two to system one, or, or excuse me, from system one to system two and thinking fast and slow parlance. And what happens is you just forget how to do the thing. So that's why figure skaters, before they go on, go, you know, it's just figure skating. It's just figure skating. It's just figure skating. They're trying to convince themselves this is not such a big deal. And why every amazing athlete seems like he's a little better than everything, well, he's had to convince himself of that somewhere along the line, that he is better than that. Because if he doesn't, if he allows the moment to envelop him, he is not going to play to the best of his ability. He's going to be freaked out. Where if he goes out there like, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking. Who's, who's the incredible sprinter of the last eight years? Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. He looks like he's clowning on everybody when he goes out there. He's having the time of his life. So I think what you need Augie, is just exposure. It's okay to be freaked out when you first get there, and you're going to be freaked out forever, but it sounds bad. What you really need to do is go out there and take your lumps. Uh, you need to, and this goes for life and poker, you need to go out and choke in a major tournament. You need to screw up. You need to screw up multiple times. And once you screw up a few times and realize, hey, the next day, I still have a roof over my head and socks to put on my feet. You don't really worry about it as much. And we all go through this, too. The first time I played poker, 
when I turned 18, you can, you can play when you're 18 in Western Washington. Uh, the first time I sat at the table, I was shaking. And then at four in the morning, I lost the $200 in front of me. And a guy next to me, a Chinese man, tapped me on the shoulder and went, happy birthday, kid. And that was my introduction into poker. But everybody gets nervous. Every single person goes out there and gets nervous. And this is why you also have to have a technical background. You need to play online poker, which is if you show up there and imagine it from a top-down perspective, you will be less worried when you play if you have the technical makeup behind it if you can imagine it from a top-down format, just like thousands, hopefully millions of hands you've played online. And more than that, you want to be playing with money you can afford to lose. That's why you want to have a college degree. That's why you want to have a trade job, one or the other, a practical college degree. Because if you are playing with money you can afford to lose, that puts you at a serious advantage over even a professional poker player who is defining his life based on these deep finishes. If you're 26 and you've spent the last eight years playing poker every day without so much as a brush-up to a major score and you're getting deep in a poker tournament, that is going to be very important to you. And you'll see those guys shaking, those guys getting worried, even with all their training because it's too important to them, whereas the people who have another job, who have a social life, who have a significant other, who have a life outside of poker, are going to be far less worried. So if you want to be less worried at the poker table, I think you have to develop other interests. Uh, It would be really great if some of them had something to do with exercise or diet, cooking, working out in some... I, I recommend... I really wish when I was your age I started lifting weights. It Stuff that will relieve tension, help you think more clearly, allow you to save money down the line. Those things are really good for you. Having an active social life, having other hobbies outside of poker, whatever it may be, uh, hopefully in a social setting. That, I think, if you invest in that, you will have a much better shot of being calm at the poker table and not really caring. And remember, you're a zygote, my friend. You are 19. Doyle Brunson was still kicking people's asses this year at the WSOP. He's 84. You literally have another 60 years to get done what you want to get done in poker. Just have fun, take your time, and have the time of your life, Augie. Good luck to you. And just a, just a note on that as well, with the hands shaking and stuff, that's adrenaline that's causing that. Yes, you know, so it doesn't mean you're necessarily frightened or scared or nervous. It could be good things. You know, it's like, it's just your fight or flight sort of responding. And I remember when I first started playing, I never really had that as much. I maybe had times, maybe if I won a big pot sometimes, or maybe a bluff. Or, I didn't really get it when I was bluffing. I think it was more when I won something so you know like maybe like a big pot or i was deep you know down to like last two tables in a you know a decent tournament or whatever where the money was significant to me at the time like playing for it there would be a bit more sort of flutters and little things in that but yeah i think it's just alex has hit the nail it's just experience and the more you play eventually you'll become uh 
curmudgeonly washed up and jaded uh, <laughs> enough to like just register for a tournament and just resign to the fact that you're probably not going to win it. Um, and you'll play a lot happier and a lot, you put the chips in no problem, uh, almost resigned. Uh, <laughs> well, I've, never, I've never thought of this, but my hands used to shake when I started because the amounts of money were always way too much for me. And then as I started making more money and as I stopped taking care of myself as well uh, and maybe imbibing a little too much every day, so I was a little rag of the next day, and I became that withered rag who was resigned to his fate, my hands stopped shaking because I just didn't really care anymore and that had its advantages. But... It also has serious disadvantages, which is No Limit Hold'em tournaments give you infinite possibilities to end your poker tournament. And if you are not constantly wary about that situation arising, you will not perform to the degree, to the capability that you want to. And once I got that back, once I started taking really good care of myself and was really excited to play poker again, yeah, my hands still shake a little. When I play, but that's because I'm so into it and I'm having such an adrenaline spike now. I don't think it's a bad thing. No. And if you want to make sure nobody can see that, learn to shuffle with both. Learn to shuffle your chips with both of your hands, then no one will see a thing. And just a, another mindset trick for it, if you want, if it's you know shaking to the point that you feel uncomfortable or whatever, to get your hands to stop shaking, what you should do is try and make them shake more with your brain like focus on them shaking even more and trying to make them shake more and it sort of tricks yourself because what it's doing is it takes your mind actually off it uh, the adre- it lowers your adrenaline and your hands will stop shaking actually because you can't make your hands shake like that it's, it's adrenaline which is uh, involuntary that's doing it so, interesting, yeah, that's a yeah. damn but good point Harry. I think you should change your profile to Alex Fitzgerald Withered Drag. that's just a great name <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds great. Alex Fitzgerald, poker coach and weather drag. <laughs> poker coach. Weather drag. Weather German rag. Yeah, there's no two words yeah. that say so much as weather drag. It's great. You know, <laughs> it's great. Um, okay, good luck to you, Augie. Let us, let us know how you get on. Um, all right, next question for this show is... This one is a screenshot, is it? No, that's the next one. This one is from Tim. Hello Barry and Alex. I have a question on dealing with being card dead deep in tournaments. What should you do when down to 20 players or less and you go card dead? Playing that stack of 12 to 15 big blinds. I find it really hard playing for a long time. Few days on live games even. Then just pushing it all in with rags hoping to steal. This stack doesn't look like getting 3 bet all ins through. So any tips would be great. Thanks. Tim? Tim. I'm going... Tim, T-I-M. Uh, was that his name? Tim, yeah, T-I-M. Tim, Tim, Tim. Tim. That one was not intentional. Anyway. Tim, I'm going to tease you a little bit, only because I've heard this question no less than 6,000 times in my life. And the answer I'm going to give you is not the question, is not the answer anybody wants to hear but it's the true answer, which is whenever somebody says, I get variations of this question every single day I teach, or not every single day I teach, but every week. 
what do I do with 20 to 30 big blinds on the bubble? What do I do with 12 to 15 big blinds at the final 20? What do I do when I only have 40 big blinds on the bubble? My question is, why are you in that situation to begin with? Here, here's the thing. The problem being, now, now you had one other question, which I'm going to address really quickly, because I think it's beside the main point here, which is, it feels so tough to wait for so long and then just shove, shove your chips in. Come on, you're stronger than that. You're more disciplined than that. Yes, that's the game, unfortunately. But you don't want to be... Like, if you're right on the borderline and you know your charts and you don't like the situation, you can take a hand off, but you don't want to get into that habit because nine guys out of ten that do that too often end up just being nits that finish seventh place all the time. Uh, like a certain someone always does. Uh, that would be me, by the way, guys, both my EPT and WPT final table. But you don't want to be just dragging through to an 11th or a 13th. If you got to get it in there and take a flip with 20 on down, you got to do it. And, yeah, it feels like the hours are dragging on, but... If you could see the hands in a replayer, you would see this isn't many hands. Just because everybody's taking two minutes for each hand, it's still only 21 hands. So you can't let them manipulate how you play based on how much time they take. You have to be tougher than that. And secondly, the more important thing to me is why are you at that stack size to begin with? Usually something huge has happened to me to get me at that stack size. Because here's the thing. When people tell me, the other variation of this is, I get my money in good all the time, and I never hold. I just get short, I put my money in good, and they get there. And you didn't say this to your credit, Tim, but it's along the same thinking, which is, my question is always, why were you at that short stack? And everybody goes, what does that have to do with anything? And I go, look, I'm trying to help you. If I really wanted to bury you, I would just commiserate with you and not offer you anything. I want to help you. And the way I'm going to help you is I'm going to ask you, why did you have that stack? When it was important to have a stack to get to the first place finish to win the tournament, why were you ill-equipped? What did you do for the prior six hours or six days? This is why that doesn't mean anything to me. When somebody says, I always get it in good, I think weak player. I think inability to get out there and win. I think inability to gamble. I think whining knit. Because here's the thing. I want you to imagine you're a guy who plays really solid poker. These guys always pat themselves on the chest. I play a really solid game. And every time you're all in, you have the best of it. Just the stone best of it. Well, I want you to imagine a tournament where five times in a row, you get aces to kings. Each time you're all in. That's a dream scenario, right, Barry? Mm -hmm. That's better than any tournament you've ever had, right? Yeah. yeah. You don't survive five times 
two-thirds of the time you will bust at some point within those five aces versus kings that you got all in your chips. You are going to bust nearly 70% of the time. Seven times out of ten, you are walking out that tournament door. Why? Because you're all in. You are gambling. The cards are up. You are at the mercy of the next five. That is gambling. Now, if you open and nobody three bets you, nine times out of ten, if I open up your database and look at what happens when that scenario plays out, you're making money. Any two cards, you're making money. When you three bet nobody four bets you, nine times out of ten, you're making money. When you're C betting big enough to fold out high cards, you're making money. When you're not double barreling to screw up those profits, because people usually call with pairs on the flop and I do not like folding them on the turn, you are saving your profits from your opens, your three bets, your C bets. That is making money with any two cards. That is not gambling. If there is no showdown, it is all skill. They could have accidentally dealt you blank cards. Is there any other game in the casino where you could not even have a hand and you could make money? No, that is from your guile. That is from your creativity. <coughs> that is from your ability to spot a situation where someone else is not going to push back. That is where the money is made. That is because you put an emphasis on spots where you make money without them seeing your hand. You don't need one. And then it becomes an art form. How often can you do it? Who's going to be likely to let you keep doing it? How can you affix a poker face that will make people feel comfortable with folding to you? Do you carry yourself in a manner that men will not be affronted when you try to take a pot from them? Then the art form comes in. Seeing what happens with a short stack means you missed your play three moves ago, three days ago. If it is a habit for you to always be on a life support necessitating stack before the bubble and right after the bubble, you're just not playing ball at the beginning of the tournament. You're showing up at the beginning of the tournament and you're not turning the gears on till the second hour. You've got to be locked in from the moment and you've got to be going after people. Everybody should know who you are at that table. 95% of these people are losers. If they don't notice you, it's because you played in a fashion befitting of the losers. They did not notice because it looks like theirs. You're better than that. Good luck to you. Okay. Yeah. Um, we got time for one more. Alex, what you like for time? Yes, sir. Let's do yeah, it. You want to do it? Okay, this one is from Craig Savage, uh, who is a guy I met in Vegas uh, through Carlos Wells. So this is, this is quite funny. Um, this one was on the Facebook group. So he says, okay, I started binge listening to the One Hour podcast in the weeks leading up to my summer trip to Vegas, and I had your dulcet voices in my earbuds as I walked through the casinos. It was a bit surreal when I heard Barry Scottish from around the corner in the wind talking to our mutual friend, Carlos. I was, okay. It was a pleasure to meet you in person, Barry. I've been wanting to send in a question for a while, but every time I start to write one, it seems to morph into your favourite question, how do you play poker? <laughs> 
But I think I finally have a question besides how do you play jacks from under the gun plus one when you raise from an open from under the gun and have been flattered in two spots. So instead of asking you how to play poker, I want to ask you about how to study poker, specifically how to best use Flopzilla as someone brand new to the software. I was wondering if you had any advice for I should go about for the first steps in maximizing what I can get out of this tool. I enjoy doing hand history reviews of my online tournaments. Should I have Flopzilla open when I do these? Give me one or two essential things I should be doing with it, please. Oh, and one more thing. I challenge you to answer this question with no reference to Nassim Nicholas Taleb or that, or that Chinese millionaire shovel salesman. Thanks for the podcast and keep up the good work. <laughs> Cheers, Craig. <laughs> He's a nice guy. I met him in person. He was a very nice guy. Not was, is a, is a very nice guy. Oh, that's good. Barry, we need more of your Trump impressions. You only do them on Twitter. That was reminding me of Trump. Very nice guy. Good guy. <laughs> One of the best, yeah. <laughs> One of the best. Salt of the earth. Two days yeah. later. I don't know that man. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, look, I've answered this question many times before. So I'm going to give you some references, too, just because we don't have a ton of time. And I'm going to give you something I've learned is if you give people one thing to do, they'll go and do it. And then they'll get curious and do everything else. If you want somebody to read a book, you should tell them, you should read this one page in this book. And then most people go, oh, what's one page? Mm -hmm. If they trust you, they'll do that. And then they read the one page and they go, oh, that's interesting. And then they read the book. Whereas if you go, you should read this book, people just aren't going to do it. Well, Learning How to Study Poker is the longest book on planet Earth. And how you should study poker, I'm a big fan of what we used to do with pen and paper was just count combos. Uh, and Flopzilla really doesn't do much more than that. It just counts the combos for you and does the math really quickly. And if anybody's ever tried <laughs> to do that by hand... You know that's really nice because, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I I read some things that Cole South wrote are just the, the big dogs back in 2007, 2008, and I was trying to get into combinatorics, and I, I would just do it wrong constantly. And then I would use, what was big back then? Poker stove? And it took me about a year to realize it would count some combos twice. A anyhow, Flopzilla is pretty much flawless as far as I can tell other than random times it freezes and the way I'd really emphasize using Flopzilla is every time you're going through your hand history so yes you should look at your hand histories with Flopzilla every time you have a hand in position and either a guy who opens 20 plus percent of the hands has opened or a guy has opened, who's opened a goofy hand before, like a Jack-7 suited or Ace-8 off. The crown jewel of weird opens, by the way, is the Ace-Rag, because that just adds infinite number of combos to their opening range. Or anytime a low-jack, high-jack, or cutoff player opens, and you're in position with any kind of suited three-gapper, suited two-gapper, unsuited connector, unsuited Broadway in fold, you got to ask yourself some questions. 
Because most of the times, if you went into your database and you filtered for all in preflop balls, three bat, and then uh, starting hands, hold them, you would find you're making money pretty with a lot of these hands. The few times you have gotten out of there, it just feels so awkward, which means you need to do a little bit of work on pen and paper to understand why you do these things. So what I would recommend is, first of all, I want you to remember, I would like you to look up how you're doing with Ace-10 offsuit. Most guys, you'll look at them in the big blind and they're losing with Ace-10 off. Okay? Unless they make a regular habit out of three-betting it, they're losing with Ace-10 off. So what ends up happening is, I want you to realize, out of position, most guys cannot make Ace-10 off work, which means... That's about 95% of their hands, because you think of anything ace-10 off or below, they can't make money with out of position. They're just hoping to save some portion of their big blind. So when you three-bet a guy, and you, you have good reason to believe he's got lots of hands, remember, if he just calls you, a lot of times he's just trying to save the bet that's out there. And there's much more variance in this play than there is from calling the big blind. If you win a pot in the big blind, oftentimes it's about five big blinds. And if you lose a pot, 10 big blinds, 15, if you're really loosey-goosey on the call, which you know I'll hate. But when you flat out of position to a three bet, now all bets are off when it comes to the variability here. Somebody might say, hey, I'm only negative, you know, I'm saving half a big blind as opposed to if I just outright folded. But I'd go, if you fold, if you outright folded, you know your loss is 2.5x. If you call, a lot of times the pots you win are 10 big blinds and the pots you lose are 30 big blinds. It will average out to slightly better that our, I don't have that ratio perfect, 12 or 13 big blinds when you win, 30 when you lose, whatever it is it will average out to being less than 2.5x, which you just forfeit initially. But the problem being, going from 50x to 63x is not nearly as beneficial as going from 50x to 20x is detrimental. And many people will take this sucker bet nonstop with no proclivity to check raise as a bluff at any point or to donk leave. Just with a very straightforward I'm going to check call with my pairs, check raise with my two pair better, and check fold high cards. But I'll call with really good high cards if it's a really dry board, hoping he doesn't double barrel the turn. I would use Flopzilla to put your hand in dead cards, put that guy's likely opening range, look at what his four bet percentage is, nine times out of ten, it's going to be a guy who says it's going to be nine percent, ten percent, right? So look at all the hands he's opening. Take about 10% of them combo-wise and realize that's that guy's four-betting range. And you're going to realize it's most of the time it's queens, kings, aces. That's it. Ace, king, and jacks when he's feeling saucy. And then I want you to put his range that he calls with because most guys do not have a full button anymore. And I want you to look at flops. And I want you to see what you would do with different bet sizes. And ask yourself if he folds high cards on those flops. And if he folds high cards, is your bet profitable? I think this is a 
I think this is not the 2080 when it comes to using Flopzilla. I think this is the 199. If you can get this, you, the game is yours. This is everybody's league. This is everybody's undeveloped portion of their game. If you would like a guide on how to combo count down the flop, turn, and river, I'd really recommend you check out the free product that Barry has been putting in the liner notes that I put together. Uh, how to Think Like a Poker Player Simplification. I would also recommend that you just go through my YouTube channel and try to find the concept lectures. I, I've posted a number of them. And a lot of them feature Flopzilla because Flopzilla is the cheapest tool to give people and it's the most effective. Most people are not dealing with geniuses. They're dealing with Bob from accounting. And he, they know the people in their local card room like to play a certain way. And they, it's, if you can get them flipping through the ranges and realizing, oh, wow, he's got nothing here. 50% of the time, and even if I bet three-fourths of the pot, which looks like a massive bet, that only needs to work 42.8% of the time, then you get some things clicking. That's another thing, guys. I don't... I wouldn't claim to be a very advanced player, but most of the time when I'm teaching, if I were a piano teacher, I wouldn't start with Bach in my first lesson. It would have to be Let's go with the basics. This is, like, not only is this a fundamental, but it is the most important fundamental nobody has ever taught you. I would start with that, and I think you're going to have a really good time if you start implementing more three bets and you start working through them with Flopzilla after your lessons. Good luck to you, Craig. Okay. And I hope to see you in Vegas next year again, Craig. I'll meet up with you again. He was he was a good guy. He was right into his soccer as well. I'll, I'll let him call it soccer. Um, okay, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for webinars and anything else you got on the go? If you guys want to write me about anything, my email address is alex at pokerheadrush.com. Uh, feel free to write in there. Uh, lately, some messages have gone to junk mail and just gotten deleted without me seeing them. So if you ever want to write me again, just go ahead. Uh, I'm not... You guys are so polite, by the way, and all your emails. Like, I don't want to blow up your email inbox. No, this is my job. Thankfully, right now, I'm small time enough that I can get back to most of you. So go ahead and write me there. I'll probably be a lot slower getting back to you this week as I see my long-lost Brazilian brother. Uh probably should not be on my phone answering emails during that time. Uh, if you want to check out my latest uh, free lecture, which is an hour of wall-to-wall -wall content, very focused, instructional content, check out the link that Barry's going to put out there. How to Think Like a Poker Player for a Limited Time, still $79, not 200 save 120 and be sure to sign up for my YouTube channel at Assassin Hour Coaching while you watch that video because I have one more video that I just put together for while I'm gone, which is a quick little fun 20-minute how to think like a poker player themed instructional video, which I, I think would be really fun. So be sure to look for that. Follow me on Twitter at The Assassinato. Check out my classic training videos at Tournament Poker Edge. A lot of people really enjoying those. Uh, 
And uh, if you want to sign up for my newsletter, go to PokerEdrush.com. That's my old blog. Uh, it definitely looks old. Go to the top right and sign up in the little box right there, and then you will get free podcasts, free articles, free videos delivered every single week, multiple times a week. Okay. And keep your questions coming in on future shows to questions at com and we will get to them eventually for you. Alex, uh, I hope you enjoy your wedding that you're going away to, meeting up with Little Assassinato. Try not to go too hard on him like you do with me <laughs> when you're... That's the most important thought. ...quizzing him about yeah. ranges and hands, and what would you do, Barry? You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, no, in all, in all seriousness, have a nice, uh, safe trip, have a nice time. And we will see you on the week of, I think it's the 23rd from memory. Yeah, it's 23rd of August. We will return on that Thursday night. Until then, keep your questions coming in. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.